Hello and welcome. I'm Molly McCann Sanders and you are listening to my new podcast, Bravado. Thank you to everyone who has been liking and sharing the podcast to your family and friends. And for those of you who have left a review or a rating on your preferred platform of choice, either Apple Podcasts or Spotify, that really is helping amplify the podcast and get it out to a broader audience. And I'm truly very grateful for that support. Today, we're going to be talking about Trump and the possibility that he might pick Marjorie Taylor Greene as his running mate in this 2024 campaign. I also want to talk about yesterday's wonderful legal news, the Matt Mark Houck uh, acquittal. And as usual, we will have a mailbag. But let's jump right in right now talking about this suggestion that Marjorie Taylor Greene might be the choice for vice president. Obviously, talking about running mates at this point is a little bit premature. Typically, candidates announce their running mates shortly before their party's convention. So the Republican National Convention isn't until July of next year in Milwaukee, 2024. So we're well over a year away from Trump actually announcing his choice. And as you know, in politics, and especially in Trump world, so much can change in a brief period of time. And so over a year is quite a long way off. At the same time, we've seen Trump rather anxious, it seems, in this cycle to jump maybe jump the gun. I don't mean to say it in a pejorative way, but he is running a little bit ahead of schedule, announcing earlier than he needed to, etc. So it's likely, I mean, it's impossible that he's not thinking about who his running mate will be. And I saw an article, I saw an article a couple of weeks ago, kind of floating MTG as a possibility, and I discounted it. And since then, though, I've been seeing more and more Trump people asking what people think of this. Sebastian Gorka tweeted just uh, this afternoon asking sort of polling Twitter followers what they thought of an MTG as a vice presidential candidate. And so that suggests to me that there is a lot of backroom discussion and talk, and they're trying to sort of take the temperature of the base and perhaps you know more broadly than the base, figure out if she is a viable candidate. And all of the reports that I have read indicate that this isn't just MTG's desire or someone from her camp, that Trump is seriously considering her as a possibility. So I think it's worth talking about. Right off the bat, I will not hide the ball on my position on this. I've been pretty outspoken on social media as well. I think choosing Marjorie Taylor Greene would be an absolute catastrophe for Donald Trump. So I am very opposed to her as a possible as a possible running mate for Trump in 2024. Now, Marjorie Taylor Greene, I really do appreciate how outspoken she has been since the time she was elected. She has been a firebrand out there for so many of our issues. Most importantly, I've really admired how she's fought for the January 6th detainees. Not many other congressmen or congresswomen can claim the activism that Marjorie Taylor Greene can on behalf of those men and women who are so falsely imprisoned, unjustly, unjustly imprisoned right now while they're waiting their various trials, etc. So, and the conditions that they were living under, especially during COVID. I mean, she really got out there. So she's to be commended, not anti-MTG generally, but as a nominee for the vice presidency, I think this is a disaster. The first thing I want to note, and this is not the most important, but it is a consideration. MTG is without a doubt damaged in the eyes of the base right now after the fight for the speaker's gavel in Congress. MTG immediately got out there and supported Kevin McCarthy. Now, in politics, people often disagree on strategy, and I don't think you should burn your bridges or excommunicate someone because sometimes you disagree on strategy. 
MTG got onto Bannon, she got onto various platforms, and she explained her reasons for supporting McCarthy right out of the gate, rather than any anyone else challenging him. Other people, like Steve Cortez and other conservatives, disagreed with Green and explained why they disagreed. So again, you can have disagreement in strategy, but it was surprising, I think, to me and to many that she wasn't she wasn't interested in putting up any fight at all. And subsequently, during the long, drawn-out many votes that we went through, there was a coziness between MTG and McCarthy that I think made a lot of people uncomfortable. Now, to be clear, I'm not suggesting any kind of impropriety there, as some people did on Twitter. I'm just saying in terms of being political friends and allies, they just seemed super, super chummy suddenly, uh, whereas, you know, a year ago or less than a year ago, they really are not, we, we thought, were not ideologically aligned. And uh, I think it certainly made me uncomfortable since I I am not a McCarthy supporter still. It made me uncomfortable to see how she seemed to just want to be one of the cool kids in his cool kid club. It, that that worried me. And I know that stuck out to a lot of other people as well. Now, she may have been just trying to curry favor with Trump because inexplicably, Donald Trump continues to support McCarthy and has all of these years. I don't understand it. It's one of Donald Trump's flaws. He's a wonderful, he was a wonderful president, and I think he's a great candidate, but he certainly has some flaws. And one of them is his sort of spotty decisions on various personnel choices. And remaining an ally of McCarthy, again, I can see some arguments for remaining aligned with him, but I'm not, I'm not a huge fan. So in any event, maybe it was just MTG knowing she wants to be Trump's pick and trying to align herself with people Trump still has in his orbit, and possibly showing that she can work with the movers and shakers at the national level, as she would obviously need to do as a vice presidential candidate. So all of those things are possible. On some level, it doesn't really matter why we saw this shift in MTG with respect to McCarthy. The fact is, it didn't fly well with the base. A lot of people really, really found it uncomfortable, and that's going to damage her. How much is it going to damage her? I don't know. If Trump if that were the only problem and Trump announced she was his his choice as running mate, I'm not convinced that it would, you know, make that big of a difference, but let's just put it out there as an issue. The fundamental issue here though is that MTG cannot do one of the primary things a running mate needs to do in the run up to an election, and that is she needs to help bring together Trump's electoral base, his whole electoral base, to get him over the finish line and into the White House. Marjorie Taylor Greene is not going to be able to, to, to draw together the base and the broader sort of laptop class Republicans who are who will vote for Trump, who did vote for Trump, but maybe aren't sure if they still want to vote for Trump. She's not going to draw them in. She is everything that those people are uncomfortable with with respect to Trump. She's rough around the edges. She's loud. She's you know, roundly mocked in the media. It's kind of like having two two significant firebrands. You know, when you think about when you think about getting elected, and I've said this a lot, and I think pretty much everyone who listens to this show knows this. You obviously need the base. No one gets elected without the base. But given where we are in politics today, you need more than the base. You know, we're just such a divided country. You really do need the rest of that 
as I kind of like to call them, the laptop class. Again, that's not a derogatory term. In some sense, I might be in the lap. I think I'm the base, but I'm also in the laptop class. It's just people who tend to make their livings on a laptop whose jobs are relatively secure. If you think back to COVID and lockdowns, these are the people for whom life proceeded generally as normal. They continue to draw a paycheck. They took up art lessons or gardening or what have you. I think I was I was working the Flynn case at the time, so there was no gardening or art classes to be had. We were pretty busy. But the point is, it's people who aren't as directly affected by the travails of the economy and by by the hardships that so many Americans are going through today. The base, the Republican base today is really so heavily working class and middle class Americans who have been crushed by the failures in our system and are really living in a very visceral way those travails. And then the laptop class, they're doing a little better and they're going to be a certain portion of the middle class, a portion of the upper class. And of course, they are also the kinds of people who are disturbed by Trump's style, who don't love how pugnacious he is, who are embarrassed by his tweets and his his faux pas in speech the perceived faux pas or otherwise, and who wish he would just be more polished. You know, the people who say, I like Trump's policies, but would he just shut up? You know, they're not the people who are going to the, to the rallies and waving the flags and loving everything that comes out of Trump's mouth. They they appreciate They appreciate the wisdom of his policies. They appreciated his leadership as president. But they probably are also the type, to be honest, who look at Ron DeSantis and see Trump 2.0. They see Trump, but Trump cleaned up. So Trump really does need to find a running mate who is still going to have the America first policies. I'm not in any way advocating that Trump tap someone who's a lightweight in terms of the substance of their politics. He did that with Michael Pence. And look where that landed us. I mean, what an absolute disaster. So we, we don't want another Pence debacle. We don't want a weak, milquetoast, rhino Republican like Pence. We need someone who really is committed to the America First principles, but yes, is perhaps a little more polished, has a little more gravitas, and can pull in that laptop class that really would rather move on from Trump and just isn't quite sure if they should jump ship and support DeSantis or support some other candidate or if they should stick with Donald Trump. So you you've got to have that glue. And when when I think about, you know, who are the other who are the other options? We don't honestly have a, a bunch of really great options I think in the pool right now. Frankly, the one who stands out to me the most is Carrie Lake. And I say that as someone who's been slow to warm up to Carrie Lake. I'm suspicious by nature, especially of people who have recently uh, kind of flipped and come into our party. That said, we're always trying to welcome converts. That's the whole idea of the, the America First movement. We are preaching a gospel of liberty and independence and American exceptionalism. And I think that those are winning messages and obviously attractive. And as the world gets crazier and crazier and goes to hell in a handbasket, more and more people hopefully will wake up and join us. So, you know, I've been watching her. But what I'll say about Carrie Lake is that she is exceptionally polished and very, very articulate. And people look at her and they find her mainstream and impressive, even as she advocates for the same kind of radical 
and I'm saying that in scare quotes, radical policies that Donald Trump supports. So in some sense, if she's as good all the way through as she appears on the outside, she is, in many respects, the perfect candidate. Her resume might be a little light for vice president, I will admit that. But as I say, in this in this day and age, unfortunately, we do not have a really deep pool. Sadly, at this point, if your resume is super, super loaded and very, very impressive, you're probably a deep state rhino. I mean, that's not a universal. I can think of a lot of very clear examples where that's not the case, but for a for in a lot of instances, that's going to be the case. So we have to be willing to look a little beyond that. But we can differentiate between, you know, just too rough and ready and someone like Carrie Lake, who's ready to grow in the job and has the polish and the presence for the international stage and the position of vice president. Am I endorsing Carrie Lake as Trump's choice as nominee? No, I am putting her up as an example in contrast to MTG no offense, as someone who just has qualities that are going to appeal to the laptop class Republicans who want to walk away right now. And you know, we are in the business here of winning, not in the business of egos or you know, just promoting whoever seems to, quote, deserve it at the moment. We want to win. And I'm just saying that the qualities that Carrie Lake has are her qualities that are better suited than those that MTG has right now. And of course, MTG, I mean, she's recently divorced. There are a lot of stories about uh, infidelity in her past. I mean, you start digging into MTG, I'm not entirely sure everything you're going to find, but it's not going to play well with this group of people that uh, the vice president really needs to pull back into the fold, keep in the fold and pull into the fold. So we'll see where it goes. As I say, this is very, very early to be discussing it, but Trump world can take a different timelines for various things. And I think that the base should start to be vocal early about people that they don't want to see as the nominee. And if you are if you're a member of the base who really gets the political game, whether you are a staunch MTG supporter, whether you're a little more lukewarm, whether you find her abrasive and are not a fan, and certainly we have people of all stripes, even within the base, who, you know, all different opinions about MTG, just in terms of strategy, in terms of good strategy, I think we should all be raising our voices and saying, she's not the right candidate. She's not the right candidate for running mate in 2024. And let's let's move on, broaden the field, and consider other options. I know a lot of you are probably also thinking, before we even start talking vice presidential picks, let's back up and ask the more fundamental question, Is Donald Trump the man for the job in 2024? Should we be backing him or should we be supporting another candidate? Obviously, Ron DeSantis has not announced his candidacy, but the more... The more I watch and the more I'm hearing, it sounds like he's gearing up to do so. I do. um, Unfortunately, I think he's going to throw his hat in the ring for 2024. That's not certain. So many things can change in politics so quickly. But everything I'm hearing is suggesting that he is getting ready to jump in the race. While I haven't gotten into all of the reasons, I think everyone who listens to this show knows that I do support Donald Trump in his 2024 run. And I think we'll have to probably do a a whole podcast on that in which I kind of explain why I think he is the man for the job. I I think he's substantively the right person. I think there are a lot of like affirmative reasons why it should be Donald Trump and not someone else, including Ron DeSantis. But then also from a practical perspective, I think that there's, there's no happy ending to a primary between Trump 
and DeSantis. It's going to be very, very bad for our movement generally. I do not think DeSantis can beat Trump. I think it'll end badly all around. But as I say, that's sort of a more complicated analysis to roll through, and I'll put it off for another show. But as I say, there's no surprise for those wondering. Obviously, I do support uh, support Trump's run. The legal update today is a very, very happy and positive one. Today is January 31st, so obviously yesterday was January 30th. And as most of you know, on January 30th, federal jury in Philadelphia acquitted Mark Hawk of freedom of access to clinic entrances violation. If you haven't followed this story, essentially, Mark Hoke was or is a pro-life activist. Two years ago in 2021, he was working outside of an abortion clinic where he was attempting to do sidewalk counseling for these women considering aborting their children. He had with him his young son. I think the boy was about 12 years old. And a an employee of the clinic must have started verbally harassing the young boy I think using crude language or something, but really getting ugly and in his face. And Hauk must have shoved him twice. I think that's what I read, shoved him twice. And at the time, the local law enforcement, local authorities looked into it and they determined not to press charges. A year later, Merrick Garland's DOJ decided to sweep in and make an example of Hauk and his family. And in September of last year, in a dawn raid, they rolled in with a SWAT team and and arrested him, even though, by the way, his lawyer had contacted had contacted the feds and said uh, he was Hauk was willing to turn himself in. There's no need to do this dawn raid stuff, but that's just kind of become a hallmark of the Biden administration's FBI and DOJ. Abusive, strong arm tactics that are meant to terrorize. They're meant to make an example. They're meant to suppress not just the subject of the SWAT, but all the rest of us watching. It is absolutely a deliberate act of more general terror, in my in my opinion. But we'll get to that in a second. In any event, they arrested him and they charged him with a federal offense. This is the Freedom of Access to Clinic Entrances Act, the FACE Act, it's called, a violation prohibits violent, threatening, damaging, and obstructive conduct intended to injure, intimidate, or interfere with the right to seek, obtain, or provide reproductive health services. So right in there, you can hear in the language of the statute that the purpose of the obstruction has to be to interfere with the right to seek, obtain, or provide reproductive health services. So one of the questions in Hauk's trial was whether he was shoving this worker because he was seeking to interfere with women who were attempting to get reproductive health services, or if he was doing it because this man had verbally assaulted, verbally abused his his own child. On Friday, the jury was deadlocked, which is kind of scary. But when they came back on Monday, very, very happily, they acquitted Hauk entirely. So obviously, this is just a huge and enor- an enormous relief for for Hauk, his family, and for all people of goodwill across the nation and the world who watched this case and understood how outrageous it was, what a grave injustice was taking place, and how the DOJ and the FBI were attempting to use use our court system to punish a political, essentially a political opponent. So a huge sigh of relief just for some context. Had Hauk been convicted, he faced up to 10 or 11 years in prison. So this was, you know, as, as all federal crimes are, they come with heavy penalties. And it was a very, very scary ordeal, I'm sure, for Hauk and his family. It just goes to show, as I noted on Instagram yesterday, you can apparently in the United States still get a fair trial in front of a jury of your peers, so long as you are outside 
of the District of Columbia. This case, of course, was heard in Philadelphia. But I want to add kind of a, a Daisy Downer side note to this whole story. And, and that is that the DOJ still accomplished the majority of its purpose. It's not hard or difficult for the federal government to bring these indictments against people. It's it's an easy thing for the feds to indict someone and put lawyers on the case and, and go to trial. But on the flip side, the cost to the defendant, it can be and is often absolutely crushing. And even if it doesn't ruin you financially and or destroy your marriage and your family, it still is going to be this enormous hellish experience that you have to struggle through to come out the other side. It's it's horrifically abusive and obviously very, very scary. And what the DOJ did, again, going back to that earlier point about the SWAT team, is they made an example of Hauk to the entire country and just showed the ease with with which they are willing to target a pro-life activist and use the force of the federal government and abuse and twist a federal statute to punish someone they disagreed with. Of course, this was all happening, if you think about it, in the whole turmoil and the run-up to the, the midterms and the turmoil over Roe v. Wade and Dobbs and, and the abortion issue. So it was a very, very volatile time for pro-lifers and for pro-abortionists and the federal government, the DOJ and the FBI came out very clearly and said they're willing to side with the pro-abortion death cult and punish, use the federal government to punish pro-lifers. And that shadow, that will cast a very, very long shadow. It made me think of Catherine Engelbrecht. I don't know if anyone is, well, I think, I'm sure many of you are familiar with this story, but Catherine Engelbrecht is the founder of True the Vote, a nonprofit formed here in Texas. She founded two nonprofits around the same time during the Obama administration, True the Vote and uh, another group called King Street Patriots. And it was sort of an offshoot of the Tea Party Patriots. And I, I remember going to conservative uh, meetings at the time, probably hosted by Phyllis Schlafly, at which Engelbrecht spoke and told her story. And it was incredibly chilling. And it stayed with me all of these years. And she, uh, Engelbrecht also provided congressional testimony. I'll put this in the show notes. She provided congressional testimony when they were investigating Barack Obama's abuse of IRS. And she told her story. And just to run through a few of the facts here for you, this isn't verbatim, but it's pretty close to a quote from her congressional testimony. She said that after applying for nonprofit status for her King Street Patriots and True the Vote nonprofits, her private business, nonprofits, and her family were subjected to more than 15 instances of audit or inquiry by federal agencies. She said in 2011, her personal business tax records were audited by the IRS, each going back a number of years. In 2012, her business was investigated by OSHA. OSHA issued fines, quote, in excess of $20,000, despite not finding anything serious or significant. In 2012 and 2013, the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms conducted comprehensive audits of Engelbrecht's place of business. And in 2010, the FBI contacted Engelbrecht's nonprofits requesting to cull through her membership databases in connection with domestic terrorism cases. She, not just not just her nonprofits, but her, you know, her personal business and her husband, they were just put under a microscope by the IRS and by other federal agencies. That's the other thing. It's not just the IRS, but by other federal agencies. They were put under this microscope and, and the government was looking for anything that they could get on Engelbrecht, her husband or her family. That is very, very scary. And of course, we all know 
that the IRS has only ramped up since then, even though during the Obama administration, they got a slap on the wrist for the way they treated the Tea Party Patriot uh, nonprofits. As you know, it wasn't just Engelbrecht who was abused by the IRS in that time frame. Even though they got that slap on the wrist, they have not changed their ways. They've only gotten worse. They've only gotten more abusive. And every single patriot activist who thinks about getting into politics or starting a nonprofit or really digging into some of these really important issues, they know this story. They remember this story. I know it sits in the back of my head. You know that if you are, if you're going to jump into the fight and if you end up being particularly effective, that you are going to be in the crosshairs, not just of the left, not of the Democrats, but of the federal government. That is how out of control our system has gotten. The federal government is so corrupt that it has no problem using the power of the federal government against political opponents. And it's very, very hard to fight the government. The government usually wins. As I say, that heavy hammer is absolutely crushing. So for me, as an activist, thinking about political activism, that is something that has to sit in the back of your head that's scary. The IRS is not the only issue out there. I also think about running for office and you think about all of the intricate tax code laws there are out there that are used to trip up conservatives. And you know there are people doing, there are innocent people doing jail time for discrepancies in their campaign finances that they're either not guilty of or completely fabricated by the, by the feds. Again, they bring these charges like they did with Hauk. And the situation in Hauk, that Hauk had was very, pretty straightforward. So I don't think it was hard for a jury to work through that. But some of these federal offenses, they're just impossibly difficult to understand. And unfortunately, the reality is oftentimes a jury just looks at the federal government and the federal prosecutors and the seal of the United States and their patriotism says, I'm pro-law enforcement, I'm pro-government, must be guilty. Prosecutor says he's guilty, he's guilty. I've seen it happen. That is what happened to Bijan Rafikian in the Eastern District of Virginia. So in any event, the Hauk story yesterday was certainly a victory, without a doubt a victory for his family, but it it's not a complete victory for us as pro-lifers or for the conservative movement because the DOJ and the FBI made a statement in doing this and that threat is still hanging thick in the air and we all know it. So I'll leave it there. I think I've uh, sufficiently made my point, but it, it does underscore that the FBI, the DOJ, the federal government generally must be reprimanded very seriously by the American people. We can only do that by taking back the White House and cleaning house in D.C. And it's going to be a very, very difficult job because these people just don't change. <laughs> Nothing has really changed since Catherine Engelbrecht was abused in a decade ago. It's just, in fact, it's just gotten worse. So we have quite a big, quite a big task in front of us. All right, let's do a quick mailbag. And I want to briefly note for those of you who want to get the show notes, I am sending out the show notes every week now. If you go to bravadopodcast.substack.com, you can sign up for free and you will get a weekly email when the podcast goes up. And it will include anything I refer to during the course of the podcast. And I'm trying to think of a way to maybe on there permit you to submit questions for the mailbag, because I know a lot of you are not on Instagram. A lot of you are, but a lot of you aren't. So it's not 
It's not always the most convenient for everyone to be able to submit their questions. All right, someone asks, do you think President Trump should run in 2024? Will he get GOP establishment support? Uh, as I say, we'll we'll do a full podcast on that. But yes, I think he should run. I'm glad he's running. I think he's the man for the job. Will he get uh, GOP establishment support? It depends on how you define establishment. He certainly is not going to get any support from the Peggy Noonans of the world and the Karl Roves. They're technically GOP establishment, but they're also just globalist rhinos. Hopefully, he's going to get support from people like Kevin McCarthy, who's also a rhino, in my opinion, but you know, likes to try to straddle the fence. And hopefully he gets support from that laptop class, which again, I'm not using that word in a disparaging fashion, but just the sort of people who are truly not actually the base, but are still, for the most part, America first patriots who want the best for the country and for their families. I hope so. Time will tell. What I do think is that Donald Trump will get the majority of support from Republicans generally, whether the base, the laptop class, whatever you want to call it. I think that he will get the majority, i.e. he'll win the primary. Uh, Someone else says, can we get back to pre-COVID common sense? I personally think Biden has done a lot of damage. When I think of pre-COVID common sense, it makes me think of the American spirit. And that's a big question. Can we recapture the American spirit of liberty and independence and self-sufficiency? And the answer is, I don't know, but I'm hopeful. I think we have to if we're going to remain the United States and not be a nation of extreme diversity, which is not a nation at all. So I'm very, I'm very hopeful uh, that we can get back there. And that's a big question. How do we reignite the American spirit? That's actually one of the reasons I named this podcast Bravado. I can explain that in a future podcast as well. I'm kicking the can down the road on a lot of issues today. But I am hopeful that we can recapture that spirit and see it proliferate more broadly. So we just have to be be hopeful and spread the good news, as I say, the good news of American exceptionalism and America first uh, policies that provide the most opportunity to the most people to thrive. Someone writes, people versus countermen and your forecast for SCOTUS's response. Uh, I think you're referring to now it's countermen v. Colorado. And this is a First Amendment true threat case. But beyond that, I'm not I'm not following it closely. They haven't had their oral arguments. I think those are coming up in April of this year. So I don't really I don't have any thoughts on that case yet. But it's something I'm happy to kind of take a peek at and keep an eye on as we roll up to oral arguments in the spring. Another person asks, what do you make of the Project Veritas video? Did we learn anything new? I thought it was one of the best that James O'Keefe has captured. It was truly extraordinary. If you're not familiar with this, I think everyone is. It's gotten millions and millions of views. One of Project Veritas's undercover reporters went on a date with some high-ranking official at Pfizer, or let's put it this way, someone who knows from Pfizer. And this man was boasting about how Pfizer is looking into mutating the virus so that they can kind of get ahead and work on vaccines sort of ahead of time, which is incredibly dangerous. It's exactly how we got COVID, how we believe we got COVID to begin with, which was gain-of-function research in Wuhan, funded by the federal government, funded by Anthony Fauci, under the table, so to speak, or certainly not disclosed to the American people. And it was through that human intervention, that gain-of-function research, that they created a monster that then got out of the lab and spread, you know, across the world, crashed the global economy. I mean, it's absolutely insane stuff. And the thought that Pfizer might be engaging in this is beyond 
beyond outrageous. In fact, it should be criminal. And uh, so did we learn anything new? Absolutely. I think that hearing, I, I think that these undercover stains are exceptionally powerful. We get to in a very kind of cloak and dagger style because they're always filmed at some restaurant and obviously from a covert position. I don't know where they hide these cameras and, and such, but it's kind of it's kind of arresting viewing. People pause and watch it. And and then to hear the things that they say from their own mouths, whether they are mocking people, whether they are saying the quiet part out loud, as people like to say, I just think they are very powerful, very powerful evidence to present to the American people, to people who aren't following that closely to say, this is really going on. Don't trust me. Listen to this person say it themselves. And then, of course, this might be the bad nature in me, but I do enjoy O'Keefe now more and more does these kind of expose. Once he's gotten the footage, then he goes and he confronts whoever it is. And that's always, that's usually dramatic. This was the most dramatic response that we all got. But I'll link that in the show notes as well, as, as well if you haven't seen it. I think everyone has seen it, but it never hurts to look at it again. Someone says, did you expect the results of the RNC election? I'm not surprised that Rana McDaniel won I didn't think it would be that close, to be perfectly honest. So I guess, no, I did not expect the results. I had hoped for a different result. That said, I think that there are some silver linings. The uh, DTR pack, Defending the Republic pack, I think they have a an interesting newsletter out, or they will have an interesting newsletter out soon with an alternative perspective on the results of the RNC election. So I will link that in show notes too, if it's out. I'm not sure that it's gone out yet. Someone says, the new gold art abomination in New York. What does that say about our culture? Oh, my goodness. I didn't follow this story that closely, but of course, I'm on social media, so I saw pictures of it. It's, I mean, I think it just underscores that we are increasingly not just a godless culture, but a pagan culture. Like We do actually have strange pagan pagan gods. You know, when people talk about how abortion is the sacrament of the left, and you watch how these people talk and how they act, you really do see... Or on climate, you know, green energy, that's a religion. These are all people who are searching for a religion. So it is disturbing to me to see these statues that do look like Medusa, or they do look like some evil pagan goddess. It's it's disturbing because those elements are certainly creeping into our culture. It also just goes to show that we've completely lost any, uh, our sense of, of beauty. And that's because we've lost our sense. We've lost our grounding in truth. And when you lose your grounding in truth, you're, you're, you'll, you'll no longer be able to find beauty or the other good and true things in life. So as I say, I didn't think too hard about it. I saw it. I kind of kept moving. There are a lot of problems. That's not one of the ones I focus on really heavily, but it did make me just kind of uh, shake my head because it's it's disturbing. Finally, someone asks, can you explain more about the Biden judicial nominee faux pas? Why was it so bad? Oh, this was another this was another video that sort of went viral on social media this week. I did actually post this video on my Instagram. If you want to go to at mall.mccann, you can see it, but I'm sure you've probably seen it in other places because it absolutely went viral. One of Biden's nominees was asked by Senator Kennedy what Article 5 of the United States Constitution is. Now, everyone listening to this is immediately going to know that what that is because all conservatives have been exposed to the Article 5 convention debate. Should we amend the United States Constitution? And Article 5 provides the mechanism by which you amend the U.S. Constitution. So most conservatives are familiar with that because this is a debate that has been raging for some time. By the way, again, I am vehemently opposed to any kind of constitutional amendment. I'm opposed to CONCON. -con. We can have another, have another podcast about that as well. But 
uh, not to get derailed, that's what Article 5 is. And this nominee did not know what Article 5 is. She said, well, I'm not, it's not coming to mind or something like that. I think that's pretty embarrassing. But on the flip side, I think most people in the legal world are agreeing, is that the end of the world? Maybe not. I know that if you start getting into amendments really far, you know, people can have lapses of memory on some points of the Constitution. But Kennedy followed up with with a slam dunk question. He asked her about Article 2. And she also had no idea what Article 2 is. And the idea that any judge, that any lawyer, let alone a judge, and this woman started explaining to us her nine years as an assistant attorney general or something, and I think she'd been a judge on some low-level court for a decade or something. Any judge or lawyer who does not know that Article 2 is the article of the Constitution that deals with the executive branch, i.e. the president, that's that's beyond disgraceful. I would just ask the earth to open and swallow me up. One, two, and three. Article 1, Congress. Article 2, the president. Article 3, the judiciary. The three branches of our government. That's where they're laid out in the U.S. Constitution. So horrifically embarrassing, uh, beyond incompetent, and certainly not qualified for that job. She'll still probably be confirmed. I I think it was not in the clip that I saw, but apparently he also asked her about some issues that are pretty big and before the Supreme Court right now, and she didn't know about those either. So it just goes to show that she was, she's unqualified and terribly, terribly prepped. I mean, it's kind of disgraceful that uh, the administration sending these people in front of, in front of Congress without, you know, prepping them for for tough questions. And that's not, that's a softball. Article two, talk about a softball. In any event, it's emblematic of the Biden administration and the general uh, the general level that all of the administration is at. You know, you look at the press secretary right now, the woman can barely speak. So it's, it's, and the president himself is mentally, obviously mentally incompetent most of the time. So it's, uh, it's, it's truly a train wreck. We have got to get this train back on the tracks in 2024. We've got to win the presidency back. It's just, it's absolutely imperative. So subjects for plenty more podcasts to come. I think that's it. Sign up for show notes at bravadopodcast.substack.com. It's free. You'll get one post a week with a notification that the podcast episode has gone live and with links to anything that I've mentioned throughout the course of the show. Thank you again for joining us today. I am Molly McCann Sanders, and you have been listening to Bravado. Bravado.